Hi, Politics Podcast listeners. This is Shankar Vedantam, NPR social science correspondent and host of the Hidden Brain Podcast. Since you like the Politics Podcast, I think you'll also like this week's episode of Hidden Brain. Most of us think that voting is a way to express our ideologies, our values, and our economic interests. But what if voting is really about expressing our emotions? The deep story behind our politics, this week on Hidden Brain, Listen on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. We recorded this episode at 11 a.m. Eastern Time Monday. Things may have changed by the time you hear it. Keep up with the latest political news at NPR.org or on the NPR One app and on your local public radio station. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, here to talk about a chaotic, confusing, dramatic weekend following Donald Trump's executive order on refugees and immigration last Friday. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Carrie Johnson, justice correspondent. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. And Mara, you are joining us from the White House. Yes, I am. And the rest of us are here uh, in one of our usual studios. Uh, wow. It's been a weekend. Uh, The second weekend of Donald Trump's presidency um, has been full of drama. Um, And and I just want to back up to the beginning, Friday evening, when this executive order came out. There was a signing ceremony at the Pentagon. I'm establishing new vetting measures to keep radical Islamic terrorists out of the United States of America. We don't want them here. We want to ensure that we are not admitting into our country the very threats our soldiers are fighting overseas. So that was Friday. Um, So what did we know about this order at that time? I feel like this has been sort of dribbling out. We knew the order barred Syrian refugees indefinitely from entering the U.S. It placed a 90-day stop to all other refugees and uh, temporarily halted immigration from seven Muslim-majority countries. We didn't initially know which countries because it took a long time for the document to come out. Well, it took several hours for the document to come out. and Because they're not listed exactly in the executive order, well, which right. made and it kind so, of difficult. Ultimately, the White House clarified those countries were Iraq, Iran, Syria, Yemen, Sudan, Libya, and Somalia. But many have pointed out that there are a lot of countries that are not on that list. Absolutely, including uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt. I mean, think about Pakistan, for example, which if you remember the 2008 campaign, the candidates had been asked, which country keeps you up at night? Right? Barack Obama said Pakistan, you know, in the way he says it. But, you know, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, I mean, the executive order mentions 9-11. None of the countries on this list had as direct ties to 9-11 as, say, Saudi Arabia or Pakistan or Afghanistan. Well, and when President Trump, then candidate Trump, first started talking about a Muslim ban, it was in response to the San Bernardino attack. And the, the people involved in that attack didn't come from any of the countries on this list. So where do the seven countries come from then? Yeah, that's a that's a fair question. And when asked why they didn't include majority Muslim countries where terrorists who had committed attacks on the U.S. had those other countries as their country of origin, why didn't they include them? The answer has been, well, maybe we're going to include more countries later. 
Okay, so back to our timeline. Friday night into Saturday, reports started to pop up that people were being detained at airports around the country, people who had been on their way to the U.S. when this order was signed by President Trump on Friday evening, people who, when they left their countries, had valid visas or they were green card holders. So they were all part of this order? That's where a major source of confusion was, Tam. People uh, had legal visas to enter the U.S. or they were green card holders, which means they were legal permanent residents to the United States. But it seemed as if uh, they were all covered by this executive order and it created major chaos at airports around the country as to how Border Patrol agents should treat them, what should happen to those people, what rights they had. So people were like stuck somewhere in the airport? Well, they... They were stuck in uh, interviews with Customs and Border Patrol folks at some place in the airport where, um, in some cases, their family members were waiting on the other side to greet them and embrace them, and uh, their loved ones were nowhere to be found. And plenty of Republicans have been critical of, if not the values of the executive order, the management and the rollout of the executive order, given that a lot of stakeholders apparently didn't know or didn't have a lot of full information on what exactly was entailed in this and how it was supposed to be carried out. And Donald Trump tweeted this morning that that was intentional, that they didn't want to give a week's heads up to the bad guys and have them come into the country. Another theory about why they didn't want to give these other agencies a heads up is because Uh, They were paranoid that some of the career public servants in these agencies would sabotage the policy. There was this remarkable New York Times lead that basically said the head of the Department of Homeland Security, John Kelly, was in a telephone briefing to learn about the policy when somebody in the briefing with him looked at a television and saw that Donald Trump was signing the order. I found it fascinating that on Sunday night, he had to put out a statement that said green card holders are allowed in the country. They're in our national interest, he had to say. Right. And that's, to me, the big thing here is that there's one thing about all the practical ramifications of the confusion around this order, how many people were actually um, inconvenienced or not allowed on a flight to the United States. But I think what 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 General Kelly was trying to say there is this refugee policy, regardless of how many people it affects, sends a big, big message to the rest of the world about how we're going to prosecute our anti-terrorism policy. There are many national security experts who say this order tells the Muslim world we are at war with you um, and could actually result in a backlash, exactly the opposite of what Donald Trump wants that could make our country less safe. And I think that the protests that you saw that were spontaneous, that's what they were protesting. They were protesting a real shift in the way the United States interacts with the rest of the world. And it's a shift that Donald Trump has said over and over again uh, he is making. Before we go any further, Let's just stop and define some terms because we're throwing around a lot of terminology. Um, Let's start with green card holders. Um, Those are people who are in the U.S. legally. As you said, Carrie, they are legal permanent residents. Um, you've, You've got permission to live in the U.S. either 
and you have permission to work in the United States. Yeah, some of the people who were stopped over the weekend and uh, uh, some of this confusion were people who uh, had professorships here at universities in the U.S. and could not get back to their jobs, their loved ones, their animals, which is a matter of great concern to me, as you know, as a dog fiend. <laughs> and uh, there was this notion that these people who have rights under the U.S. Constitution were being more than inconvenienced, that their rights were being abridged in some fashion. And it takes years to get a green card. This is not like some quick process. It takes years to get a green card, and then you have to do additional steps in order to become a citizen. So yes, it's a long, long vetting. Talk about extreme vetting. That's it. And then refugees, um, these are people who go through their own years-long vetting process and then are admitted to the United States. Um, They can apply for a green card sometime about a year after that. Um, And these are people who are in many cases, fleeing war-torn countries or, or real harm. Yeah, some of the people who, um, the early people who were detained appeared to be uh, people who had helped the military, for instance, in Iraq as translators or interpreters. They had waited years to come here, endured a lot of vetting, and had in some cases been supported by um, American service members whom they had helped at great risk to their own lives in Iraq. Okay, one more term a visa. Um, It's more temporary. That's where you still have a residence outside of the U.S. It admits you to the country for a specific limited period, like studying at a university. Um, People who get visas, like people who get green cards, are vetted. And if you're from one of these seven countries, getting a visa... Not an easy thing, right? It takes a long time to get a visa as well. And and especially if you're from one of these countries, the the Trump administration and previously the Obama administration had designated as being risky in some fashion or other, uh, it's safe to say you undergo special scrutiny overseas. So on Friday, it was really unclear which of these groups of people this applied to, uh, who was affected, and there were immediate legal challenges. Right, Carrie? Yeah, the ACLU rushed into court in Brooklyn over the detention of two Iraqi clients who were detained at JFK Airport. And Judge Ant Donnelly issued a temporary restraining order barring the deportation of those men and 200 or more other people who had been caught in the crossfire here. So they filed as a class. They were like, we have these two clients, but we're talking about any Anybody trapped at an airport. Yeah. Yeah. And the judge accepted that class. She said that uh, sending any of these people back would cause them irreparable harm. And uh, she wanted to know uh, how many such people there were. And she wanted a list of all affected travelers and refugees from the Trump administration. As of this taping, no list has been forthcoming. And then other federal judges ended up weighing in as well. Yeah, there was a cascade of rulings in all rulings in more than four courts. Um, Here in suburban Virginia, a federal judge ordered that green card holders be allowed to consult with volunteer attorneys who were waiting on the other side of the airport, hoping to talk to them and advise them. And then another judge in Massachusetts ruled these travelers not only were free from immediate deportation, but that the people being held in the airport should be released. So those rulings in Massachusetts and the ruling in New York were the broadest in scope. They applied to this whole group of people who were either here and stuck in the airport or in transit at the time of the order. And there was there was a lot of confusion at these airports with lawyers and politicians and all kinds of people saying that they couldn't figure out even like who was in 
stuck in in the airport or who was being detained or what was going on is do you have any sense like whether these rulings were being followed well we've heard um anecdotal reports from the aclu the immigrants rights project and lawyers at airports that they were not getting access to detainees but they couldn't tell how many people were behind the gate in another room somewhere and there were some questions to tam about uh whether these people were getting enough food and water and and uh stuff like that while they were being detained So, Mara, in the face of all this, the White House has been saying that this is working perfectly? They've been saying this is working perfectly, which just by the what you can see on TV doesn't sound to be completely correct. But what they are very confident about is that in the end, not only will the president prevail legally, and Kerry could probably tell us more about his chances, but he does have, presidents do have a lot of authority over refugee policy and immigration policy. Not only do they think he'll prevail legally, but also they think that in the end, the American people are going to be for this. We don't have a lot of polling. Uh, We do have a poll from Quinnipiac in earlier this month that showed 48 to 42 percent people were positive about suspending immigration from, quote, terror prone nations. Um, So they feel pretty confident that he said he'd do this in the campaign and he is doing this. And um, we know it's really galvanized the opposition in Washington. But you know, they think that in the end, this is what the American people want him to do and not just his hardcore base. I do think that that's worth, you know, keeping a bigger picture in mind, you know, that there are all of these granular problems below the surface. But what is it that people wind up paying attention to uh, based on what they believe already? You know, within that poll, it was, Mara said, 48-42 support essentially for this policy. But when you break that down by party, it was 72-17 support for Republicans. It was 49-42 support uh, from independents. The only people against this and overwhelmingly are Democrats. Two thirds say that they oppose it. So there is a big split in the country, as there are with a lot of things politically nowadays. Uh, and when it comes to this kind of policy, this is something that Trump campaigned on. And it's why the White House believes that they, at least in the big picture, regardless of the potential mismanagement that may have occurred uh, from the outset, that they have the American people on their side, even if it's a close split. Is this a Muslim ban? Is there a reason to believe that it was conceived as a Muslim ban and not just <laughs> extreme vetting? So let's go right to the to the primary source. Let's go to the language of the executive order, because yeah. if you control uh, F Christian, it doesn't exist in this. Uh, if you control F Muslim, you're not going to find it in the executive order. So you have to look at the language. Section 5B gives us the best example of why this does prioritize or potentially prioritizes Christians, because it says that the executive order can prioritize refugee claims made by individuals on the basis of religious-based persecution, provided that the religion of the individual is a minority religion in the individual's country of nationality. In other words, if you are from a country that is majority Christian and you are Muslim or Jewish or some other religion, then you could be uh, then you could be prioritized. On the other hand, if you are in a majority Muslim country and you happen to be Christian or uh, some other Yazidi? religion, then you could be prioritized. So 
when you look at these seven countries that are on the list, they are all majority Muslim. Muslim. So it's very difficult to not say that it's something of a Muslim ban or effectively a Muslim ban and prioritizes Christians. Carrie? We also had a bit of uh, insight over the weekend from a close Trump advisor and former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who went on Fox News and talked about uh, his discussions with Donald Trump about this proposal. Okay, talk to me. Tell you the whole history of it. So when he first announced it, he said Muslim ban. He called me up. He said, put a commission together. Show me the right way to do it legally. I put a commission together with Judge Mukasey, with Congress. So make it legal, right? I want it to be a Muslim ban, but make it legal is essentially what uh, Rudy Giuliani is saying there. You know, we should also note, forget looking at the language, forget (laughs) listening to Rudy Giuliani. Listen to Donald Trump himself on the Christian Broadcasting Network talking to their host, David Brody. You know, if you were a Christian in Syria, it was impossible, very, very, at least very, very tough to get into the United States. If you were a Muslim, you could come in. But if you were a Christian, it was almost impossible. So and the reason we fact-checked so this over the weekend. The uh, I checked with our international team, Alice Fordham, Jaina Roth, uh, Larry Kaplow, our Middle East editor, and uh, we went through the numbers on this. First, we should say it's true that 99% of the refugees from Syria admitted in, t- in 2016 uh, to the U.S. were Muslim. Less than 1% were Christian. Uh, that would outpace Muslims' population in Syria based on 2010 numbers. Muslims are make up about 93% of the population in Syria. Uh, Christians are about 5%. So they're not quite in line uh, with what their population is. Now, there are possible reasons for this, however. One, the displacement of millions of uh, refugees through different countries has changed the population size. But another big reason is that Assad has been uh, in some ways giving a measure of protection to Christians. Uh, As Alice Fordham had pointed out, that Assad Assad is the president of Syria. The leader of Syria. His regime, she said, loves to paint itself as a protector of minorities and that there are still a large number of Christians in the Syrian capital of Damascus. So if you're looking at how the civil war has played out, if many of the Christians are in Damascus, then and the capital is in Damascus. Which isn't Aleppo and some of these other places that are like really, really wrecked. Right. So does that mean ISIS hasn't gone after Christians? No. Yes, they have gone after Christians in some uh, ways. The problem that Donald Trump is talking about, as with so many other things, he's exaggerating. Aren't aren't the biggest, most significant victims in numbers Muslims? Muslims. Absolutely. And they are also the ones doing most of the fighting against ISIS. And one other number, roughly equal, are the number of Christian refugees who were admitted to the United States as Muslim refugees in 2016. So with so many things that Donald Trump has talked about, he's exaggerating the size of the problem. Back to the timeline here. Sunday morning, there was still a lot of confusion, but Sunday morning, uh, staff and and aides from the Trump administration went out on television to, to sort of try to clarify things and, and promote what they saw as, as a real policy victory. Um, so White House Chief of Staff Reince Priebus was on Meet the Press with Chuck Todd. This was Sunday morning. And, you know, he still wasn't clear about whether or not green card holders were affected by this order. 
first he said they weren't. As far as green card holders moving forward, it doesn't affect them. But here's the deal. If you're tr coming in and, and out. And then he said they were. This order does not impact any green card holders from these seven countries? Well, of course it does. If you're traveling back and forth, you're going to be subjected to further screening. I mean, further screening. Further screening. Yeah. Okay. You say it doesn't affect green card holders moving forward, but you just said it does impact green card holders from those seven countries. Those two things don't compute. No, it, it computes, Chuck, because there's discretionary authority that... A that created a lot of confusion. People who had green cards already lived here in most respects. They were going back to their lives. They weren't going somewhere new. And so that's why you heard, to the extent there were initial flurries of concern coming from members of Congress from both parties, it was focused first on the green card holders because those people actually have rights in the U.S. and they have lives in the U.S. And the notion that you had issued an executive order with little consultation uh, from the Department of Homeland Security or the Border Patrol, uh, which was coming down around the ears of green card holders, was a big problem in many respects. Well, it's like green card holders and their families and their employers are constituents of members of Congress who uh, there was sort of a, a surprisingly loud, growing uh, level of concern, including from more than a dozen Republican members of the Senate who there, there was sort of a mixed bag of reaction. One reaction was this was poorly implemented and poorly crafted. And I think the best example of that came from Ohio Senator Rob Portman, a Republican who was speaking on CNN. You know, I think it was not properly vetted. So you have an extreme vetting proposal that didn't get the vetting it should have had. And as a result, in the implementation, we've seen some problems. And obviously, there were also a number of Republican senators who supported this move and were very happy with it. But then there was another strain of pushback that was probably best summed up by GOP senators John McCain and Lindsey Graham, who argue that this move will make America less safe, not more safe. Uh, they put out a joint statement over the weekend that expressed fear that the order would become a, quote, self-inflicted wound in the fight against terrorism. And they went on to say, our most important allies in the fight against ISIL are the vast majority of Muslims who reject this apocalyptic ideology of hatred. This executive order sends a signal, intended or not, that America does not want Muslims coming into our country. But what Donald Trump is pushing is this idea, as he said in, in his tweet, the world is a mess. He is pushing an apocalyptic view of the world where America is under siege, where the victims of other countries that send terrorists here or they steal our companies. And our jobs. It's a really dark, besieged vision of America under fire. Now, I, the question for me as a political reporter is, do Americans see their country that way or not? And listen, you talk to somebody who was in the national security apparatus after 9-11 and until very recently, and uh, to a person, um, they will almost tell you that Muslims are our greatest allies in the fight against extremists. And to uh, send this kind of signal to them as this executive order is being perceived is a step back. Actually, this morning on Morning Edition, uh, they spoke with uh, Michael Hayden. Uh, he served Presidents Clinton, Bush and Obama in top intelligence posts and as director of the National Security Agency and CIA and the director of national intelligence. And what he said in that interview was just striking. It's a horrible move. It is a political, ideological move driven by the language of the campaign and, frankly, campaign promises 
promises in the campaign that were hyped by an exaggeration uh, of the threat. And in fact, what we're doing now has probably made us less safe today than we were Friday morning before this happened, because we are now living the worst jihadist narrative possible, that there is undying enmity between Islam and the West. That's what's what's scaring a lot of national security experts about this, about what it's going to do to the bigger threat to the United States. Is it going to make it worse or better? You know, a lot of people subscribe to that view. That's what Lindsey Graham and John McCain were, were trying to say this weekend. You know, Mara and Carrie were talking a little earlier about the uh, scope of the problem and the numbers and the people, the number of people that are in the country. Just a, cu- a couple numbers to put in perspective. Domenico, with bring Elizabeth in the numbers. Data. I know. But. Germany in 2015 brought in 964,000 Syrian refugees. And Germany is a smaller country than the United States. Yes. By a lot. The United States, in part because of the giant ocean that is between us and the European continent and because of the strict vetting mechanisms that are already in place, only brought in slightly over 12,000 Syrian refugees. Think about the difference there, 12,587 versus Almost a million. And Domenico, the executive order that Trump signed on Friday night halves the number of refugees the U.S. will take in in 2017, cuts it in half from what President Obama had anticipated for this year. Now, President Trump mentioned and and others in the Trump administration mentioned this idea that the ban is similar to something that President Barack Obama did back in 2011 with respect to Iraqi refugees. Who can talk to that? So I covered this case at the time. And if memory serves, what happened is that um, the U.S. government was slow in processing fingerprints off IEDs, bombs it found uh, on the roadside in Iraq. And Whoa. when it finally got around to processing these fingerprints, it's all, this is always a bureaucratic morass, right? When it finally got around to processing these fingerprints, it found the fingerprints of two guys who had been admitted to the U.S. from Iraq. And uh, they were living in Kentucky. <laughs> that was kind of a problem. And they were charged with a crime. And after that happened, the Obama government slowed down the process for a while to make sure that everybody who came in in that batch of refugees had uh, not left their fingerprints or other biometric data on bombs targeting uh, American service people overseas. So the process slowed down for a little while, but there was never a stop. And it was not as drastic or as sudden as, as what we just saw this past weekend. OK, so going forward, we can expect a lot of legal challenges. The ACLU over the weekend raised a ton of money. Carrie, where where does this go on the courtroom side of things. So the first flurry of lawsuits that we saw, or um, petitions for habeas corpus is what they're called, that started Friday into Saturday and through Sunday, um, applied to people who were denied entry or were in transit during the time that this order was signed or the immediate aftermath. Those cases are easier than the big, fat constitutional question of uh, whether the president has the power to do this under immigration law in the first place and whether it constitutes an improper religious test. So we have uh, little cases here and there that involve specific human beings who will be admitted into the U.S. 
or not. Those people suffered injuries. The question is whether the U.S. courts will want to recognize those injuries if they're non-citizens. And there's also, a, you know, a real tension because the president has a ton of power when it comes to immigration. This is a major prerogative of the executive branch. He's supposed to decide how to protect a, a national security best and how to open or close the border. And federal law gives him a lot of power to uh, decide which people come in and which kind of classes of people come in. Where the rub comes is that in 1965, Congress amended the immigration law or updated it to make clear that you can't give preference to or discriminate against people on the basis of a place of national origin, race, that kind of business. So, And is that why this conversation about whether it is a Muslim ban or whether Christians would have preference, is that where that comes in? That comes in a little bit there with respect to whether people had equal protection under the law. And then there's a separate issue under the Establishment Clause. You know, we all love the First Amendment because it protects what we do. Because we're in right? it. Right. Uh, it's about <laughs> us. Yeah, in part. But, but, part but part of that First Amendment says that Congress shall make no law establishing a national religion. And some of the evidence that Domenico uh, talked about with respect to Rudy Giuliani's comments, uh, there was a tweet over the weekend from the son of National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, in which he, he called this a Muslim ban. Some of that could come out in litigation if these people can get farther along in court. And aside from the legal protests, there have been outpourings, like physical in-person protests at airports all over the country. And unlike the Women's March last weekend, which was planned for a long time in advance and people booked their flights and knit their hats or had people knitting their hats, um, this seemed to just be spontaneous uh, and at airports all over the place. I spent all of Saturday night on social media watching these protests, and in particular, the one at JFK Airport in New York, where at various points they closed down the train that New Yorkers were using to get to the airport. If you've ever been to JFK Airport and you know any New Yorkers, it's at hellish place and people would not like logistically go there as as someone who grew up 15 minutes from it i will tell you that trying to get to it on a normal day on the van wick expressway is no fun and by the way i was born in jackson heights in queens too but um the, the best tweet was <laughs> donald trump got new yorkers to go to kennedy airport when they didn't have to <laughs> that was that was his great accomplishment yeah that is <laughs> Apparently, that is quite an accomplishment. But they actually reopened the train so more protesters could go. Is that right? Governor Cuomo ordered the train reopened. So uh, officials, Democratic officials in some of these places were feeling the heat or of their own volition were trying to facilitate these people exercising their rights to protest for sure. And since I always bring in the numbers and you're talking about outpourings, the ACLU noted that they got on Sunday night 356,000 donations, totaling t over $24 million. More than they get in a year, typically. Yeah. And Mara, I, I want to get to one other thing. It happened on Saturday night. Uh, President Trump signed a presidential memoranda sort of reorganizing the National Security Council uh, and putting Steve Bannon, who's the senior strategist to the president, uh, on the National Security Council, which is um, 
That's different, right? It's something that hasn't been done before. He was added to the Principals Committee of the National Security Council at the same time the Director of National Intelligence and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff were downgraded and, and removed from the Principals Committee. So that is unusual. What um, is the Principals the Committee? The Principals Committee is kind of the, the elite part of the National Security Council. And Carl Rove and David Axelrod, who held the same positions as Steve Bannon in the two previous administrations, were not on the Principals Committee. They're political people. People, They're right? political people. And they advise the president on everything political, including foreign policy, but they didn't participate in National Security Council meetings. This is just another illustration of the outsize role that Steve Bannon plays. He's the chief strategist. He's the keeper of Trump's nationalist populist ideology. He wrote the inaugural address. He and Steve Miller, the top policy aide, seem to be driving the executive order process. And uh, this just shows you how incredibly important he is. And when the White House was justifying this, they were saying, well, he's not just political. He has this global view. Well, what they were really saying, he's not just uh, involved in domestic politics. He's involved in everything. And they were corroborating what other people said, which is this is an unusual thing for a political strategist to be in everything. Mara, can we just remind people why Steve Bannon is controversial. He's, he's yeah, Steve, Steve Bannon is controversial. I mean, he was an investment banker and a naval officer, but he also ran Breitbart, which is the website that traffics in conspiracy theories and has become a haven for white nationalists. And he very famously told the Daily Beast a couple years ago, he just compared himself to Lenin. He said, Lenin wanted to destroy the state. That's my goal, too. I want to bring everything crashing down and destroy all of today's establishment. I was looking this up and the White House chief of staff is on the principles committee and it has been described that Bannon is competing with the White House chief of staff, Reince Priebus, as like sort of the power center in that White House. Yeah, you'd have to say that Steve Bannon has a has a more central role and is closer to Trump uh, than Reince Priebus is. Here's the go? thing about Steve yeah. Bannon. He has a very particular worldview. It's not Republican. He has been highly critical of Republicans. It's nationalist. It's and na isolationist. Yes, it's nationalistic. It's isolationist and kept a very low profile during the campaign. And quite clearly now, as Donald Trump has become president of the United States, in just the first week, we have seen how Steve Bannon has exerted that influence in a very, very strong way. You see a stamp all over mm -hmm. everything that's Absolutely. happened in the last From day week. one, on the on the day, National Day of Patriotism that they put out, you know, there was all of this... Patriotic devotion. Patriotic devotion. A very nationalistic proclamation that went out talking about American heritage, very similar to the way Bannon has talked and written in the past. OK, so one more thing I think one of you mentioned, um, and we heard from President Trump's Twitter feed this morning that he's going to announce his pick for the open Supreme Court seat vacated by Justice Scalia when he passed away. Uh, that announcement will come Tuesday night at 8 p.m., quite nearly prime time. How, there's going to be a fight there. How does that play out? Does this get wrapped up in the, the executive orders? How, where does this... There's every one of these things influences the next fight. You have now tremendous 
energy among the base of the Democratic Party for their representatives to put up pretty much across the board opposition to Donald Trump. You know, there was this Democratic debate about, well, will she, should we work with him on some things that we agree with him on, like an infrastructure plan, and then block his more far-right cabinet picks. But I think there's a lot of energy among the Democratic base, and you're going to see that tension play out in the fight over the Supreme Court justice. If they need eight Democratic votes to get to 60 uh, to confirm the nomination, there's going to be tremendous pressure on those 8, 9, 10, 11 Democratic senators from red states who are up in 2018. Carrie? Yeah, I think this is not just a fight about uh, the nominee and the the three names on the shortlist that uh, we've heard are all white men, two relatively non-controversial, a third rather more controversial because of his statements about abortion in the past. Uh, It won't be as much about their personal records as it will uh, about whether they're going to advance and endorse Donald Trump's domestic and international agenda, but mostly domestic agenda. Liberal groups are still very angry that this seat was kept open for nearly a year. And Merrick Garland, the Obama's nominee, never even got a hearing. This this becomes like a power play in the Senate about what Democrats are willing to do. That's true. And, and you know, here's the thing. Donald Trump essentially issued a threat about this saying that we have obstructionists and wanted Mitch McConnell potentially to get rid of the 60 vote threshold that would be needed to advance a nominee to the floor. Now, Democrats may not actually go through with it on this one because uh, this is replacing Antonin Scalia. What happens the next time when they have to replace Uh, perhaps a more liberal justice. One other point I wanted to make, I found it sort of odd that Donald Trump took to Twitter this morning to say that he's announcing this tomorrow, but he's already made his decision. You know, usually. (laughs) Well, and last week he announced on Twitter that he was going to announce it Thursday, but all of a sudden with this thing blowing up with the immigration ban, suddenly he's moving up the announcement. Right. But I mean, this is straight out of reality TV. I mean, you think about the fact that like normally, normally what you may know that a White House has uh, picked somebody and is going to do a rollout of something, but they don't tell you, I've picked the person. Now I'm going to wait a day and a half to roll it out so you can find out who gets the rose. But you know what? This is reality television without the television. I mean, we're in we're in a whole new world. There are going to be real world repercussions to every single thing that Donald Trump does. All right. That is all we have time for today. But as you can tell, we will be back in your feeds very, very soon uh, to talk about President Trump's pick for the Supreme Court. And of course, we will do that with legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. Um, If you're finding the show valuable during this busy time, please leave us a review on iTunes. That helps other folks find the podcast. And donate to your local public radio station. Go to npr.org slash stations, find your station, donate, and then tell them we sent you. That link is in the episode information of this show. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Carrie Johnson, justice correspondent. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. And thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.